Good morning, Glasgow Grace. It has been, it was awesome to spend some time with you guys uh, yesterday on um, the video call. Um, what a weekend to be missing out on being together. This weather is absolutely incredible. I don't know what it's like in Glasgow, but the sun is glorious today in Newcastle. So uh, huge greetings from Newcastle upon Tyne, uh, from everyone here at Cornerstone. Um, know that we have been cheering you all in our prayers. Uh, we are so excited uh, to see all that God has in store for you as a community called to be the grace of God to the people of Glasgow. Um, I, when I was kind of thinking about what to preach to you as a community, um, I got caught up on your name, Glasgow Grace, and then we got chatting with Ian, and he said, Mike, just preach anything that will remind us afresh of the grace of God. And we've been preaching through the book of Acts as a church. And I thought, you know what, Acts 15 is a perfect passage for us to, to, to jump into today. So if you have a Bible handy, please turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Uh, while you do that, if you are a person who likes to take notes, I've got three points for this morning. Uh, the first point is that grace trumps legalism. Secondly, grace is for everyone. And lastly, grace brings freedom and joy. So grace trumps legalism. Grace is for everyone and grace brings freedom and joy. Uh, just to jump into the into verse 1 of Acts chapter 15, we see that grace trumps legalism. Verse 1 says, Some men, you can underline that in your Bibles, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised, According to the custom of Moses, then you cannot be saved. Now, what's happening here? Luke has recorded for us an occasion where a certain group of people were telling these new Gentile believers in Antioch that in order to live life to the full as a Christian, it's not just the grace of God that you need, but that you also need something else. And in this case, um, that the men need to be circumcised. Now, what did circumcision mean? Surely it was not just the physical act of circumcision. Surely it meant more. What did it represent? And why were these men who were once Pharisees want these Gentile Christians to be circumcised? You see, the Pharisees were the Jewish religious elite of the day. They were, um, and these men were converted Pharisees. They are now Christians. They would be men who were raised and trained in the way of the law of God. Now, in the Old Testament, it is recorded about how God um, loved a man called Abraham. And that God um, had decided to bless Abraham and his descendants into being a great nation. And what God does is that he gives Abraham a sign of this promise. And this sign was circumcision. And ever since then, all Jewish boys in the eighth day after birth are circumcised as a sign that they now belong to the people of God. That is what circumcision meant. Now, in Jesus' day, when Jews became Christians, they didn't stop being Jews. They continued to follow the Old Testament law 
because that was what they were used to doing. That was their culture. They continued to do the festivals. They continued to not eat certain foods because that was against their conscience. And it was into this context that these men who were Pharisees, now Christians, are still wrestling through the familiarity of their past. They were wrestling with grace and the law and the mix thereof. They're kind of asking the question is that, is it Jesus plus Moses? Or is it Jesus and just a little bit of Moses? Or is it just Jesus? And these people were passionate. They were saying that the law of Moses matters. It defines who the people of God are. They were wanting to correct Paul's teaching of how you are saved by faith alone. And so they go to this church and they and what they and they and, and they do what they think is best. They try to explain that unless these Gentiles are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, then they cannot be Christians. They say that if you want to be a Christian and you want to be included in the family of God, then there is a condition that is attached to it. It's great that you want to become a Christian, but if you're going to do that, then you also need to become a Jew. And you see, what this message of grace plus something else does is that it places this heavy burden on these new believers. Now, maybe as you sit in your living room or your bedroom this morning, you're able to identify with the pain and the burden of this message of salvation or relationship with God means his grace plus something else. That in order to be loved, that in order to be accepted by God, you need to kind of jump through a set of hoops. That now that you are a follower of Jesus, you need to be like this or be like that or behave like this or speak like this or do all of these certain things that you need to kind of fit into this particular mold that Christian culture has made for you. Now, I'm not sure about um, how lockdown has been for you, but for us as a family, it has definitely had its ups and downs. Hey? I was reflecting one night this week on, on how we as parents are doing with the God-given mandate as parents to raise our kids in the way of the Lord. I had a little bit of an assessment as to how are we doing or how are we not doing it. And from time to time, I, I admit that my default parenting style has been one of telling my kids how they are to behave and not to do this and don't do that and speak nicely to your brother. Stop saying that. Why did you hit him? Uh, why, why did you do that? Why did you do this? Etc. Etc. But you see what this style of parenting does is that it's teaching my children how to behave. It's behavior management. I'm teaching them how to fit into a mold of what it means to be a good boy, acceptable in society. And that when they do those things that I've asked them to do, what do I do? I affirm them. 
I tell him, well done. I love you. That's so good. You see, the message that I'm sending my children in that moment is that when you do this or when you do that, then you will receive the praise and the well done from your father. And when you're not fitting into the mold, then you're scolded and you're told off. But this is so contrary to the gospel. The gospel says you are loved and you are accepted full stop. You see, I'm trying to change the heart of my kids through rules, and I'm losing the battle. Whereas the only thing that I can do to change the heart of anyone is the gospel of Jesus. If I want to see change in my kids' life, I need to be teaching them about Jesus. Allowing Jesus to do the work of changing their hearts. And the reason why I use this example this morning is because we too have a tendency to bring our past cultural influences and add them to the gospel of grace, thinking that we need to do something or be like someone in order to be loved and accepted by God. But that is not grace. That is legalism. Legalism is going back to a life of rules and regulations and it is one of the biggest causes of defeat and deadness amongst Christians today. You see legalism emphasizes what you must do in order to be loved and accepted. It says human effort trumps the power of the Holy Spirit. And you see these Christian Pharisees are insisting on their version of what a Christian should do legalism, that they should go through similar things a person who converted to, to Judaism should go through, such as circumcision in this case. You see, it is, it is natural to find it difficult to make a break from your past, to make a break from your upbringing, just like these Pharisees. And I'm sure it was with good intentions that they put these distinctives and traditions upon these Gentile Christians. You see, because we are all influenced by our backgrounds and by our upbringings. But the way I live my life based on my upbringing is unfair to put upon the next person. The challenge, however, is to identify what are those points of error or misemphasis in my life before I drift too far away from the grace of Christ, just as these converted Pharisees eventually did. You see, history and experience has proven that anything, anything made a co-requirement to faith will soon shove faith to the side and it will become a means to salvation. It brings me to my second point is that grace is for everyone. You see, Paul and Barnabas end up having to go back to, to Jerusalem from Antioch to seek advice and counsel from the church in Jerusalem on this issue. Should Gentiles be circumcised? We need to find out. And verse 7 uh, tells us what Peter says. Verse 7 of chapter 15. After much debate, Peter stood up 
Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them his Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. You see, Peter gets up and he begins to recall the account of what happened a few chapters back with the household of Cornelius. He begins to recall where, where God spoke to him in a, in a vision, where food was kind of coming down on a sheet from heaven. And God says to Peter, get up, Peter, and eat the food that is on the sheet. And Peter says, surely not, Lord. It is unclean, like there's hooved animals and everything is unclean on, on the sheet. Surely I cannot eat it. And God says to Peter, who are you to call unclean what I have made clean? And to which Peter doesn't quite fully understand the meaning of until the Holy Spirit leads him to the house of Cornelius, who was a, a Gentile, a, a Roman centurion, and they were regarded as unclean by the Jews. And what happens is that Cornelius and his whole family receive salvation, are baptized and are, are filled with the Holy Spirit. Pentecost 2.0 happens. You see, Peter makes the point in verse 8 that God knows the heart of man, that he bears no distinction between them, and that he has cleansed their hearts by faith. They cleanse not by circumcision or by ceremonial laws, but by faith in what? The blood of Jesus. You see, at the cross, Jesus made what was unclean clean. And Peter is reminding them and he's reminding us, look, God is saving the Gentiles. Let's not be hypocritical. Let's not put this yoke of the law upon them. Why are we trying to get them to obey the law that we and our fathers have not even been able to obey and follow ourselves? The other day I said to my eldest son that it was time for him to get off the PlayStation that he's been on the screen for too long and he needs a break. To which, in typical teenage fashion, he replies with a why. Why, Dad? And I said to him, because screens are bad for you. And then he replies, then why are you on your phone? And I was like, yeah, okay, good point, cool, yeah, that's okay. You know, how much do I expect of others things that I cannot even do myself? You see, Peter is saying, guys, why are we trying to put this yoke, this burden on these Gentile believers when we can't even keep it ourselves? Don't we do that so often? He's highlighting the insufficiency of the law. You see, in the Old Testament, God gave the Israelites the law and it was good and it was holy. You see, he gave them 10 commandments so that they would know how to live but he did so knowing that they would never be able to obey it completely. You see, God knows the heart. He knows the nature of our hearts. He knows that there will be times when we will worship idols and when we will lie and when we will steal and when we will cheat and covet and be lustful. He knows. 
And yet he gave the law as a gift to the Israelites to firstly teach them how to live, but more importantly, to point out their sin. So that they would come to comprehend the depravity of their hearts and come to him. That's why he gave them the law. He never gave the law as a road unto salvation, but he gave it to them to reveal their need for salvation. He gave it to them to be as a mirror to help them to see the imperfections of their souls. To help them to see the hypocritical character that they had. That they expect more of others than what they can do themselves. Aren't we just like that? You see, he gave them the law so that they would see their need for grace. You see, laws and legalistic actions don't stir our affections for the Lord. Instead, they stir our affections for rebellion. I see this in myself, and I see this even in my children. Levi is my second-born child. Uh, When he was about one and a half, we had an amplifier that controlled our surround sound speakers in in the TV room. And when you put it on, it lit up like a Christmas tree. It had a big, shiny, silver volume dial. But Levi knew that he was not allowed to turn the silver dial or to play with the amplifier. And one night, as we sat down to watch telly, uh, Levi goes towards the amplifier. And we, as parents, say, Levi, no, no touchy. And in classic child way, what does Levi do? He looks at us and he touches the amplifier. Then, as parents, there is a stern no, you know, and then we remove him and we try and distract him. And then, a few minutes later, shuffle, shuffle to the amplifier. Levi, no touchy. And what does he do? Boop! Touches the amplifier. That happened about 10 times. You see, rules don't stir our affections for worship, but rather for rebellion. You see, the law, even though it's holy and it's good, In our flesh, what it does is it creates rebellion. But we also need the law to point out what sin is and how we need grace. We can't chuck the baby out with the bathwater. We need law and we need grace. You see, Peter concludes with verse 11 and he says, We believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter's saying that salvation is through the saving grace of Jesus alone. You see, every person from the most educated to the least comes into God's family the same way, through the undeserved kindness of a forgiving God. Glasgow Grace, it doesn't matter who you are. Saving grace is for you. Saving grace is for everyone. We should never move on from grace. We think that we know grace, but we don't really show favor to other people. That instead of assuming the best in someone, we assume the opposite. The grace of God is that he sees your mistakes. He sees your flaws. And instead of him highlighting them like a a judge on Britain's Got Talent, God rejoices in you because of the blood of Jesus that has washed away All your imperfections. This is the good news of grace. You are saved by faith through grace alone.
My last point is that grace brings freedom and joy. You see, after Peter sits down, James, the brother of Jesus, gets up and he quotes from the Old Testament prophets saying that this is part of God's plan to bring the Gentiles into the family of God. But then James makes some interesting comments. Let's have a look at what he has to say in verse 19 of chapter 15 of Acts. Luke writes, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from that that has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in every Sabbath, in every synagogue. Now, what is going on here? Is James not putting it, setting in place a bunch of rules and regulations? Is he not putting a yoke of bondage over these new Gentile believers, giving them, them some rules? It seems confusing, doesn't it? So what does James mean at this moment? Well, I think it's important for us to understand that James is not talking about law-keeping as much as what he is talking about peacekeeping. You see, remember, for the Jews, to eat at the table with a Gentile would be really tough. Because the Gentile could probably be eating bacon buddies where the Jew would find that absolutely offensive. And what James does is that in this moment, he recommends to this church in Antioch, to these new Gentile believers who understand the grace of God, who understand freedom in Christ, he makes the request to them to lay down some of their freedom for the sake of the gospel, for unity and for fellowship. So that they could be the people that are different, so that they could be with people that are different to them. And we see that in verse 31, it tells us that the Gentiles in Antioch rejoiced at the news. See, James is also wanting um, to, to kind of point out that he wanted as many Jews as possible to, to come and to know and experience the grace of God. He knew that there were Jews scattered throughout the globe and he wanted the Gentile believers to lay down some of their freedom so that when these Jews would see these Christians, they would not be put off by their impurity, but instead they would be curious about their devotion to the Lord. Can I ask you, Glasgow Grace, are you willing to lay down some of your Christian freedoms for the sake of gospel unity? I think that this, at this moment in Paul's life shaped Paul's understanding when he wrote to the church in Corinth and he said, I became all things to all men so that I might win some. You see, in our consumeristic world that we live in, we live life the way that we want to live. 
But can I ask you, Glasgow Grace, are you willing to make sacrifices to win people for Jesus? Not because you have to, but because you want to see souls won. Are you willing to give up your preferences in church and, and your city groups so that there will be unity amongst you? Are you willing to not only understand grace, but also to show it to others? To always assume the best in others? Are you willing to show favor to those who don't deserve it? To do things that they don't deserve? You see, this chapter, Acts chapter 15, is not only about conflict resolution, but it is also about how we are saved. That it is by faith alone, by grace alone, and through Christ alone. And although this might seem basic, never forget it because as people, we tend to forget the basics, don't we? You see, Christ has fulfilled the law and the sacrifices from the Old Testament. They were all shadows of the coming of Jesus. We have freedom. We now have the Holy Spirit in us to convict us of sin and remind us of our freedom that we have in Jesus. And so we are able to, at times, to lay down our freedom for mission and for unity. Do we need to be circumcised as Christians? No. No, we don't. But at the same time, yes. What do I mean? I'm going to land with this passage out of Colossians that I'm going to read for us. Colossians chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 11 to 15 it reads as follows. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Physically, we don't need to be circumcised, but spiritually and metaphorically, we do. We do. You see, this passage reminds us that in the midst of conflict, Jesus didn't freeze or take flight, but rather he humbled himself. He went to the cross and he, he took on the conflict that we deserve. The wrath of God for our sin and disobedience so that we can know forgiveness and eternal life and so that he could show us grace. This is the good news of grace. 
that although we don't need to obey all 613 laws of the Old Testament, we also need to know that grace is also demanding because when we understand the beauty of grace, we will give everything for it. To be blunt, you will give more than a piece of flesh. You will give your whole life to worship him and to honor him. Glasgow Grace, may you never graduate from grace. I pray that you would rather dig deep into it, that you would learn to show it to others. Why don't we close our eyes in prayer as I pray for us. Our Father, we thank you that you are a good Father. We thank you that even though we rebel, even though we make dumb choices, Lord, you look at us through the bloodstained lenses of your Son, Jesus. And you rejoice over us as your sons and your daughters adopted into your family. Lord, we thank you that, that even though we might be the worst of sinners, even though we might be the worst of sinners, we know that we are saved by faith alone and the blood of Christ alone. Lord, I pray, would you help us to live out this truth and to dig deep into it? Help us to be a people that praise you for grace but also that we would show it to others. We ask all of this in your son's beautiful name, Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.